All right, Engel versus Vital was a 1962 Supreme Court decision that changed America forever. Some here may remember that particular law uh, case that, that changed America. It was based on a 22-word prayer that is as follows. You can read it along with me up here. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. This is the prayer in New York schools that was addressed by Engel versus Vital in 1962. Uh, the court ruled that this prayer was unconstitutional in regards to the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And this court decision spiraled out of control, and within 12 months, Bible reading was taken out of schools, religious instruction was taken out of schools. Within a year, a whirlwind occurred. I want us to spend just a moment on the sixth word that we see up there, and if you're counting, it's the word dependence. This prayer was all about dependence on God for provision and protection. And this was the prayer that the Supreme Court struck down. Interestingly, the name of Jesus Christ was not even invoked in this particular prayer, and it could have been taken other ways, which made this legal ruling all the more suspect in itself. But at the heart of the prayer was the word dependence, which became the heart of this case. Sinful man wishes nothing more than to be independent from his creator. He wants to prove that he is God himself. This is nothing short of humanism, which is America's religion for today, if we look around. I would argue that that is actually a, a uh, religious worldview that should be abolished because of the Establishment Clause, if they're going to take that as well, in my humble opinion, if we want to be consistent. But in today's scripture, we're going to see how dependent man is upon God. And we're going to see Jesus call his disciples to do an impossible task to show their need for dependence upon him. He's going to give, Jesus is going to give them the incredible challenge, you feed them. Join us as we read the scripture in Luke chapter 9, verses 11 through 17, in your Bibles or up on the screen up here. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come and, and worship you through singing, worship you through the word, worship you through fellowship with other believers. God, we don't want to take that for granted, as Brother Jim talked about. So many, such as some of the missionaries we even support, aren't able to do that. They're not able just to go and worship freely in a large group without fear of retaliation, even death maybe. But God, we're here this morning able to worship you, to glorify you, 
and to make much of you. May we not take that for granted. So many are at home right now, not worshiping in a body, uh, taking it for granted, knowing that, oh, I can just go next week. But God, may we hold tight to that. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know what we're promised. May we enjoy this freedom while we have it, take advantage of that freedom. And may we also know that you are worthy of our worship, our corporate worship. God, you've called us to that. You've commanded us to worship you together. And so God, help us to make, make your body, your fellowship, the church, a priority because you love it despite our blemishes. You, you love us and you've chosen to reach the world through the church. So may this church and may all the churches around here be churches that love you, that make your word priority, that make the gospel priority, that love their neighbor so well that they'll share the good news of the gospel and show them your love. Lord, we thank you and praise you. May you be with us today. Amen. Today we're going to see three ways that followers of Christ should live. The first is point number one. Jesus charges his followers to live selflessly. To live selflessly. Verse 11, Luke 9, we're going to reread it. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus and his disciples took a break in the, in the area of Bethsaida, as we saw back in verse 10 last week. We talked about last week at the end of the sermon the need for healthy rhythms. You know, life can get really busy, and we need to set healthy rhythms, time with the Lord, time alone with God. We saw that Jesus did that religiously, uh, to be honest. Like, he did that relationally would be a better word. He had a relationship with the Father, and he spent time with the Father. We need to do that as well. Yet we can see Jesus could not rest for too long because the crowd found him and his disciples. Uh, if you look at the next slide, there's a map. We see Capernaum and Beth Bethsaida is where the little balloon is. Capernaum is just a little to the left here, which would be west. Um, if we're looking uh, by, by water, you're looking at about a four-mile journey. By foot, you're looking at about an eight-mile journey. So they wouldn't have had a great head start, a little bit of one. So they were decompressed for a little while. Um, but yet we see Jesus has compassion for these people. Uh, you know, I'm sure he wants to rest as well, like his disciples, but we see in Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. We must appreciate the selflessness of our Lord and Savior. He was tired like the disciples. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man, and he needed rest as well. Yet his motivational force we see in Mark 6, 34, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He knew that they were lost, that they needed to hear the word of God. I know sometimes we get home from work, we get home from school if we're kids, we finish school at home, whatever is going on that we've done. We've got back from a ball game. We got, you know, the last thing we want to do is talk to our neighbor about Jesus. We just want to veg out, we want to relax, but that neighbor's just out at the car, standing there. And we know the Holy Spirit's pushing us, but how much when you be like Jesus here, where it's like, okay, this, is, this person's eternal, you know, eternal destination is in the balance right now. They need to hear the word of God. May we work for the Lord even when we don't feel like it. There's going to be times where we can take those good rhythms, where we can get that good rest. We want to do that when we can, but there's going to be other times when we must live in utter, complete dependence on God alone for our energy and strength. We should do that every day, always. That's not just a certain season, but certain seasons requiring us even pushing even more into Christ because we just cannot even fathom doing it with our own power and strength. 
If we attempt to work in our power, we will fail and find ourselves burned out and ready to quit. Have you ever been there? I have. You know, you work and you work and you work and you're just doing it in your own flesh, your own strength. Some of us are a little type A, maybe a little bit. And, and so, so we, can, we can get a long way in just our human strength, but after a while, we crash. We crash down quick. We need to rely on the Lord or we will burn out. Listen to these two verses about relying on the Lord for strength. Philippians 4.13, which we hear quoted a lot. I can do all things. Some people just stop there. <laughs> I can do all things. That's the American motto. You can do whatever you want to. No, you can't. No, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, the things that he's called you to do, you can do by his power. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. That's a great word, isn't it? Be not dismayed or discouraged, fearful. For, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you want to be able to persevere through the Christian life, you want to finish well, you must rely on the strength that the Lord provides. We must exercise wisdom and navigating the rhythms of life, making sure that we do take breaks when we can. These, these bodies are not able to keep going without a break. Our spirits need time with the Lord. But, we, but as we live our lives selflessly, dependent on the Lord, we must be fully dependent on His strength and not our own to continue. Next, number two, we see that Jesus charges his followers to live sufficiently. To live sufficiently. I've chosen this word sufficiently because we're about to see the dependence of the disciples upon Jesus in this coming miracle. God is all sufficient for his people. We must live as if there is no need in the world other than what comes from God because that's a true statement. There is no need that we have in this world that does not come from God. There's no desire in this world that we, cannot, that, that we have apart from God, His grace, and what He's given us. He is the creator of everything. He provides everything that we need. We look at Luke 9, 12. We're going to start seeing the scene start to move forward. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So it was the spring of this area. We know that because of the parallel from John saying it was the time of the Passover. So we're looking at the spring. At that point, the sun would usually set somewhere around 6 p.m. Uh, is about where we're looking. So we're probably looking at an hour or two before dusk, uh, maybe 4 to 5, somewhere there. And, and the disciples are starting to look around, and they get pretty practical. Like there's 5,000 men, and we're going to see in a little while there's more than that, most likely a lot more than that in this area. And they're going to need a place to stay. Once it gets dark, it's kind of hard to find your way in the wilderness, in, the, in a desolate place where they're at. And so the people had enough time to pro probably get to a town at nightfall. If you look at that map, it wasn't too far. They could have traveled to a, a local town to find somewhere for food and so the disciples encourage Jesus to send them away. And don't you love it when the disciples tell Jesus how to do ministry? You know, it's like, hey, you know, Jesus, you probably ought to do this. And then, you know, as I sit there, and I'm sure all of us as we read it, we're like, what's wrong with you all? Don't you realize he's God? Come on, come on, fellas. Like, why do you keep telling Jesus what to do? Like, you know, then I start to, the finger goes from here to starting to look back here. And I'm like, how many times do I say, well, if I was God, I would do that. It's the exact same thing. We can do this too. We can put ourselves in that same position the disciples, trying to give Jesus, you know, some, some of our advice, how we would do it. God, I know, I know you're in charge, but this is how you probably should do this. Instead of saying, God, what do you want from me? I think that's probably a pretty stinging rebuke for all of us here. 
We can definitely relate to the disciples. We are simple. We are sinful. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. But we're given more detail about the situation, the interchange that happens if we look at the book of John. So John 6, 5 through 7, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of the disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. I love John always likes, he gives like the inside of what Jesus is thinking at the time, just from talking, knowing, understanding Jesus. He's the disciple who Jesus loved. Don't you love that? He, he refers himself that way too. Uh, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. We see this little interchange between Jesus and Philip here. And, and we know that the disciples are kind of a part of this. They're, they're all kind of a part of it. So Jesus looks to Philip, who uh, seems to be the budding CPA, the accountant of the group, and says, all right, what are we going to do? Like, I, I, I want you to feed them. And, and, you know, I can imagine Philip sitting there, and he's, you know, the math-minded guy, I guess. We're, we're kind of seeing that. And he's just thinking, okay, well, what's bread going for these days? How many people do we have here? Somebody got anything to write on, you know, write with? Like, he's trying to calculate it. So we see, and he comes up with a number, which is pretty impressive in itself. Like, he comes up with an actual number, and he's like, oh, yeah, so 200 denarii. And then he thinks about it for a minute, and what's he say? It wouldn't even be enough for everybody to have a morsel. Like, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't even spread, be spread enough. And he, that's 200 days' wages would be at 200 denarii, at least. And then as we saw in Luke's account, the disciples chimed in and recommended that Jesus say, hey, get these people out of here. We can't take care of this many people. This is, there's too many mouths to feed. We don't have that kind of money. You know, we know Judas was still in the money, so they weren't really rolling in it anyway. So they, they, they weren't doing great. And here's where it gets really interesting in, in verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we, we are to go and buy, all the, or buy food for all these people. I love the sharpness and directness of Jesus' response here. You give them something to eat. That's where I came up with the title, You Feed Them. Jesus calls his disciples to do something that they are completely powerless to do in and of, in and of themselves. He presses in on their complete dependence upon him and him alone. They had just done some pretty amazing things. If you remember last week, or if you remember, if you weren't here last week, if you think about uh, Jesus sending out the, the 12 two by two into the communities, told them not to take anything, he was going to provide for them, God would provide for them. They were casting out demons, they were healing people, and you know what? They probably came back a little puffed up. Jesus, look what I did. I did what you did. I threw out that demon. Oh, hey, Jesus, look what I did. That guy couldn't walk, now he can. That person was dying, but now they're alive. But now Jesus presses in back and says, you're not God. You, you still have to depend on God. Just because I gave you the power to do these things doesn't mean you're any better. You still have a complete dependence on the supernatural Savior, on God. As Alexander McLaren said, it is often our God-given duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that he who gives them, meaning the tasks, has laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. The best prep preparation for his servants to their work and the world is the discovery that their own stores or energy is small. God is all sufficient. It means we don't need anything else other than God. There is nothing else you need other than God himself. The less we trust in our own strength, and the more that we trust in his, the more successful we will be. 
and ministering for him. God is all sufficient. We start to see the humbling of the disciples through this command. So they search out, as we saw, if they found some food, John tells us a little further where they find the food in John 6, 8, 9. One of, the, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Uh, we're told that Andrew ends up finding this boy. Andrew's this guy that always brings people to Jesus. Like, it's amazing. He brings Simon Peter to Jesus. He brings all these, hey, Jesus, here's this person. So he's the guy that brings them. He's kind of the more optimistic of the group. But even the optimist is having a trouble with this one. Even, even the optimist says, but what are they for so many? You know, it's just, just, just amazing to see even him. He, he's the only one that actually brings something to the table, literally and figuratively. Interestingly, interestingly, we should note the importance of this miracle. This miracle is actually in all four Gospels. You would think, oh, there'd be a lot. The first three are called synoptic. There's a lot of overlap in Matthew, Mark, Luke. But John, John's written a decent bit later and from a different perspective, more theological in nature. So we actually don't, John doesn't include a lot of the things that were already in the other Gospels that preceded him. But this one is in there. John wanted people to know, hey, this one's really, really important. And, and there's consistency. It's actually always five loaves and two fish as well. Moving forward, we see just how big of a situation was set before them, Luke 9, 14 and 15. We've kind of alluded to this already. For there were about, how many? 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and they, and they, all, and he, or, and they did so, and he had them all sit down. Here we see the humble disciples obey their master. You know, we saw them question Jesus, and we kind of blasted a little bit for that, and then we blasted ourselves knowing that we aren't any better. But we have to admit they do obey the Lord. They do listen to him, and they, they do have the people sit down. Uh, why do they have them sit down in groups of 50? Probably organizational. We're not told exactly. Also to kind of figure out, okay, we fed this group. We haven't fed this group. We need some aisles. You have to think about it. These disciples are about to, they're about to put some steps on their Fitbit. If you think about it, they were about to get some mileage in with feeding that many people because it actually wasn't just 5,000. We may be looking at three to four times that, maybe even more, because Matthew tells us this in Matthew 14, 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there are even more than the 5,000. The disciples obey the voice of the Lord, and we can learn a lot from them on this. Obviously, they had questioned a little bit, like, Jesus, we need to send these people out of here. We don't have enough provisions or lodging to be able to keep these people here. And having 5,000 men along with women and children on top of that sit down in groups of 50, does it make a lot of sense? No. I mean, right now they got five loaves and two fish, which is enough to feed just a few people. And they're going to have the, he has all these, all these people sit in groups. And at this point, we have to admit that it's a little ludicrous that he's doing this. Like, it's like, what is Jesus doing? There's this much food and there's all of these people and he's having them sit in groups and they're taking these steps before they know what's about to happen. And I think that's important for us in our lives, in our spiritual lives. Sometimes God calls you to do something before you have any idea how, how he's going to get it done. And you look, planning a church, right? Sometimes God calls you to do something before you see people sitting there and fellowshipping together and you're all alone and it's just you and your wife, right? And, and, and you're like, well, God, I don't know about that. I, I, that's kind of scary, right? Sometimes God calls you to, to move and take a job somewhere. You don't know anybody there. You don't even know if that job's going to stick. I know some of you have moved across the country multiple times, and you've had to make those decisions. But God wants us to take that step of faith. As we saw the priests with the flooding Jordan River, what did they have to do? They had to take that first step 
step with the ark, and then it stopped. And God oftentimes, we don't know why, but it's part to test us, to grow us in our faith. He doesn't tell us how he's going to do it. He didn't tell them, I'm going to multiply the fish, get everybody sitting. He didn't do that. He didn't tell them that. He did that later, and we'll see that in a minute. But he had them obey his voice before they knew the whole story. I think some of us, we struggle with that. That's faith. We need to make sure we have faith in God, uh, that we trust Him before we have all of our ducks in a row, before we know every single thing, especially for us, and this is me too, that are kind of science and math-minded, uh, the Phillips of us that maybe have that CPA type of, of, of movement, that scientific thing. It's like, well, God, I, I don't know, you know? I mean, so how are we going to do that? And tell me the 10 steps we're going to do to get to that point so that I can trust you in order to do that. And God's like, no, I'm not telling you those 10 steps. You're going to have to take that first step, then I'll help you take the next step, then I'll help you take the next step. And that's how he builds us. We must trust in his sovereignty, his over everything, his omniscience, he is all-knowing. Moving forward, we see Jesus move supernaturally and all-sufficiently in response to their practical steps of obedience. We'll see what God can do with that one step of obedience here in verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them, to the, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. The disciples get a glimpse of creator God here. Sometimes we miss this when we're reading this. They get a glimpse of creator God. He, after blessing the bread, he begins to break the bread and hand it out time and time again. At this word for breaking is continually breaking, not just breaking once. He breaks it, hands, breaks, hands it. This is an important theological understanding to understand about God. This is what the world really struggles with, even though they still kind of think about the whole Big Bang idea. They still believe that something came from nothing, but they try to explain it away in a way that makes you confused because something had to still come from nothing. In the beginning, nothing, everything exists. Well, where did it come from? But we see that God created everything ex nihilo, which means that he made everything out of nothing. How amazing is that? God spoke the world into existence into an ordered existence, into a sequential existence, as Genesis teaches us. He made everything out of nothing, and now we see Jesus. What's he do? He feeds five to 20,000 plus people. We don't know exactly the number. Five loaves, two fish. I don't care what kind of sous chef you are, you cannot cut that into 20,000 pieces. And you could say, oh, well, he, he gave everybody a morsel. No, like, you, you can't do that. No, he, and we're going to see here in a second, they were all satisfied. So they actually ate enough to where they were full. How amazing is that? This miracle confirms the fact that he is, in fact, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God made flesh, 100% God, 100% man, who came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. When speaking about Jesus Christ, Paul says the following, Colossians 1, 16 through 17, For by him all things were created, is Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It is this amazing God who is at work amongst the disciples that are in the crowd gathered. Before moving forward, I really want us to address a liberal theology that some of you may have heard. Uh, and, and many churches of the day, it has kind of been creeping in for decades, becoming more and more popular. And many have tried to explain away this miracle by asserting 
The people brought food. They had it. They were, they were hiding it. They were fearful that someone might take it, and they, maybe they wouldn't be able to get back home and have enough to eat. And they assert that this young boy was his being willing to share his meal shamed the others into sharing their meal as well so that everyone was able to eat and be satisfied. Now they focus on the young boy as the catalyst of this miracle instead of Jesus Christ. I actually sat and heard a sermon that was that exact sermon years ago. Made me want to throw up, I'll be honest. So this is nothing short of demonic teaching. Demonic teaching is what this is. Because what it does is it takes the focus off of Jesus and it puts it on man. And man loves that. And churches that do that grow tremendously because man loves to think that man is great. You can do this and you can make a difference in this world. You can do this. No, God will do it through you, but you can't make a difference in this world. This world is evil and it takes the work of God to make a difference through you, through the gospel. It is nothing short of humanism and naturalism that seeks to deny the miracles of Christ, defame him, and elevate man. Besides, the people ran after Jesus in haste, right? They didn't have time to pack a picnic. They were like, hey, we got to get there. You think they had enough time to go and everybody had food? That's why there was only one person that had food in the whole place, because they were running after Jesus. I could spend time going through the scriptures and talking about the the, the breaking of the bread and, and, and the tense of that verb and how it continued, continually breaking the bread. We could talk about all kinds of things to combat that heretical teaching, but the root of this false teaching is naturalism. Liberal theologians do all that they can to explain away the supernatural because if they do that, they try to explain away God and the deity of Christ. Last week, we saw that if the disciples went to a town when they were sent out two by two, what were they to do if the people did not accept them? Shake the dust off their feet and walk away. My friends, if you were in a church and a pastor preaches that, I admonish you, shake the dust off and get out of there. Because that is not a church that is glorifying God. Getting back to our account, there's another important aspect for us not to miss as well. Jesus tells us that this is around the time of the Passover. John 6, 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. However, this particular Passover is not, Jesus isn't in Jerusalem. And we're like, well, why is he not in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover there? We're told in John 7, 1, the reason why. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It was not time for his death yet. He still had some ministry to do, so he's doing the Passover in the wilderness with a big crowd of people. What's Jesus doing in the middle of this time of the Passover preparation? What's he doing? He's, he's breaking bread, isn't he? For those of you who've been around the church for a while, maybe your wills are starting to turn, you're thinking about the Passover. What was the Passover anyway? Well, the Passover was instituted in the book of Exodus. We see in chapter 12 the requirements for this Passover. A lamb was to be taken and slaughtered at twilight. The blood was above the doorposts. And this Passover was to remind Israel, and at that time it was to save Israel's firstborn who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. The destroyer came and killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt that passed over those who had the blood of the lamb above their doors. And this Passover was a foreshadowing of the lamb of God 
who would take away the sins of the world, namely Jesus Christ. And moving forward, this is this hybrid moment before Jesus would die as the Lamb. And we have the Passover, and Jesus is right in between this at this point, if we're looking at history, close to the time where he would die. And what's he doing? He's breaking the bread, and it looks forward to the Last Supper that was to come, where he would break the bread and say, this is my body broken for you and for me. And just like this crowd of people that were fed by the bread from the Savior, the, the bread of life, so, so in the same way, we are offered the bread of life through Jesus Christ, who died and was broken and killed for us. We are saved by his work on the cross. At the Last Supper, he, he broke that bread and said this was to represent his body, as we said. His death on the cross was sufficient for our salvation. Nothing else is needed. Just like those people didn't do any work to be fed by Jesus Christ, we can't do any work to feed ourselves and to save ourselves. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. And his working power in us and through us is sufficient to do what he has called us to do. And finally, we see that Jesus charges his followers to live satisfactorily. To live satisfactorily. Verse 7, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So the people were satisfied. There is no greater satisfaction than Jesus Christ. There's nothing else on this earth that will satisfy you like him. The beauty of Jesus is that his love and his mercy never run out. Just like in this miracle, there are 12 baskets full of pieces left over. They don't run out of food. Everyone eats until they're satisfied. And actually, that word satisfied, if we really look back, when you were looking at, at agriculture, you were looking at growing animals, it was actually gorging animals to the point where they couldn't eat anymore. They were just done. Like that's what, so these people were fully satisfied. They couldn't even take another bite without being done. And we won't go into further detail there. But, but so, so, so they could not eat anymore. And that is how Jesus is satisfying to us in our lives, or he should be. And just like the bread didn't run out, right now, salvation is open to all those who would come to him, who would respond in repentance, turning away from their sins, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, perfect life, some 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for our sins, rose three days later, and is now at the right hand of the Father. But my friends, today is the day of salvation, as 2 Corinthians 6.2 states. Because once Christ returns in reigning glory, it won't be too late. Once you die and you go to meet your maker, it, it's too late at that point. I pray that everyone here has experienced that true satisfaction that's only found in Christ. If you find yourself not satisfied by Christ, my question is, are you really in Christ? Are you really a new creation? Because he is the only thing that will satisfy you and fulfill you in this life. There is nothing more satisfying. We must find our satisfaction in him and him alone. No earthly relationship can truly satisfy you. If you want to have a good marriage, we'll be fully satisfied in Jesus Christ first because your wife or your husband cannot fully satisfy you and fulfill you. It's impossible. If Jesus is satisfying you, then you're able to fully love your wife and, or your husband. We can only enjoy good friendships if our ultimate satisfaction is in Jesus Christ and not in what they can do for you or what they bring to the table. People cannot fully satisfy or fulfill us. Only Christ can.
There's definitely a reason why the 12 baskets were left over. Jesus lets also the disciples know that he will provide for them. He will care for their needs as well. And we can fully rely on the Lord also. We see in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours. Every need. Wow. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We need not worry in this life. I know there seems like there's a lot to worry about, and we can get down in these worry pits, and it can be really, really tough. But our God is Jehovah Jireh, which means the God who provides. And some of you have heard that term, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, and we're like, oh yeah, I love that. I love that term. But do we remember where it comes from? Like, wh- where is this name of God seen at, or seen in the scriptures? We see in Genesis 22, 9 through 14, Abraham and Isaac. And if you recall in that account, we see Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his son. The promised son, the, the, the son who was to, to be the seed of blessing to the world, right? Jesus would come through the lineage of this son. And God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice him. And as Abraham lifts up the knife to slaughter his son, God says, Stop. And he provides a ram in the thicket that is caught, his horns are caught. He says, Don't sacrifice your son. I provided this ram in the thicket. This was a foreshadowing of the God who would provide for us. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, would be right here upon us, saying, you, you are, you're destined for hell. This is where you're going. And God says, stop. Look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've offered. He's telling us to stop right now. Look, acknowledge Jesus Christ. See that salvation is there. He took the punishment on the cross for us, for all those who would believe. But if we don't take it, that knife comes down. The judgment comes down upon us, my friends. Don't let another moment go with the wrath of God ready to send you to hell. I know that sounds incredibly scary, and I don't mean it to sound that scary, but it's truth. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, covering our sins, we are destined for hell. But praise be to God, by his kindness and his love for us, he took the penalty on the cross. He was crucified, brutally murdered for us. The punishment that we deserved, the wrath that we have earned for ourselves, was taken upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And by his wounds we are healed. How great is it? How loving is it? Is there anything more loving that anyone has ever done in your life for you? When you think about all the good things people have done, Has anyone suffered and bled and died and been crucified and took your sin? No, other than Jesus Christ. What an amazing God we worship, my friends. I pray that you have responded in faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you just see how satisfying and wonderful he is. So come to a close. We've seen that the Lord charges us to live selflessly. We're not to be building our own kingdom, but instead we're to be doing his work, but through his power and his strength. We've seen that we are to live sufficiently, meaning that we're to live relying on him alone. And finally, we are to live satisfactorily, meaning we find all of our joy and our contentment in Christ alone. He is the only thing that can truly satisfy us, my friends. If you want a good marriage, find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ, first and foremost. If you want to enjoy your job, find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. If you want to be content with what you have, find your satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Nothing else in this world can truly satisfy us. We rely solely on the all-sufficient 
satisfying Savior.